Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 45. We are picking up where we left off last week. And as we turn to God's word, let's once again go to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word is great. And as I believe we will see today, your word has heights that we can hardly express as it speaks of Christ. Father, would you be pleased to exalt yourself in our hearts and our lives today? Father, would your word and spirit have their way with us, and may this time together be toward your everlasting praise and to our everlasting good, for we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at number 45 in our summer psalm series, about eight to ten psalms every summer. And uh, we'll be here in the Psalms until probably the Sunday after uh, Labor Day. So you see the title, A Royal Wedding. And my guess is many of us may have thought about a royal wedding in England, of the, the British monarchy, the British royal family. Over the last couple of decades, there have been several um, royal weddings but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about a, a, a wedding of a couple that met back in December 1941, became engaged in December 1943, and were married in January 1945 at the First Presbyterian Church of Rye, uh, New York. I was able to track down a newspaper wedding announcement that appeared in the newspaper, the Sunday newspaper of January 7th. 1945, and it's a, a traditional wedding announcement uh, in that day, and I want to read just a few highlighted excerpts. The wedding of Miss Barbara Pierce, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Marvin Pierce of Rye, New York, and Lieutenant Junior Grade George Herbert Walker Bush, son of Mr. and Mrs. Prescott Sheldon Bush of Greenwich, Connecticut, took place yesterday afternoon at four o'clock at the Presbyterian Church in Rye with Dr. John D. Gregory officiating. Attending the bride as maid of honor was, gives her name, and so-and-so was the matron of honor, and the bridesmaids were. The bride wore a gown of ivory satin made with dropped shoulder outlined in pearls and embroidered with pearl sprays. Her veil of heirloom lace was worn by the bridegroom's mother. It was of princess and rose point lace mounted on bridal illusion tall. She carried a bouquet of white orchids. Prescott Sheldon Bush served as his brother, served his brother as best man. A reception at the Apawanis Club in Rye followed their ceremony. Mrs. Bush was graduated from Rye Country Day School and from Ashley Hall, Charleston, South Carolina, and attended Smith College. It goes on to say that Lieutenant Bush was graduated from Greenwich Country Day School and is an alumnus of Phillips Academy, Andover, Massachusetts. He received his wings in June 1943 at Corpus Christi, Texas. 
a fairly traditional wedding announcement of the day. And did you notice that the focus was on the bride and what the bride wore? Not much said about the bridegroom. But Psalm 45 is a wedding write-up, a description of the bridegroom and the bride, where we will see that the focus, interestingly, is not on the bride, but on the bridegroom. Psalm 45 is a pleasant surprise in the Psalter. We have gone now from gloom to glory. It's a unique psalm. It's a wedding poem written by a court poet. That is one who wrote things for the the king and his royal family. And the closest parallel we have to Psalm 45 is, of course, the Song of Solomon. And we infer from uh, that this is the occasion of a royal wedding in the Davidic line of kings that proceeded from David's son Solomon and his son and his son. Now, as we read and hear Psalm 45, uh, let's remember it is love poetry and there is hyperbole. There is an exaggerated statement uh, for effect at times. Let's listen to verse 1 and notice the anticipation. Here's the superscription. To the choir master, according to lilies, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This is very unusual in the Psalter. The psalmist is telling us what he's about to do. He is is writing a pleasing theme. And I, for one, am thankful There's been a lot of lament, and as we know, lament is good and necessary and can't be avoided. But here, it's going to be a pleasing theme. And notice, he is a ready scribe. He, one who writes quickly and writes neatly. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm, uh, similar to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. It's directly quoted in the New Testament and Whereas all of the Psalms, all of Scripture indirectly points to Christ, you can see clearly, as we will see, that this Psalm in particular points to Jesus. Um, We've got to talk a little bit about biblical interpretation here. There's a first reading, there's a second reading, there's a near horizon and the far horizon. And the first reading and the near horizon, of course, is it's a royal wedding. It's going to be spoken and sung at a royal wedding. But upon a second reading and a third reading, and as scripture continues to be written, and as it's gathered together in the canon, and we see it completed, it's got to be interpreted in the light of the completed scriptural canon. If you would turn with me to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, we uh, go there um, occasionally, it's uh, an interpretive key of the whole scriptures, I refer to it every uh, now and then, um, but I'm going to read a few verses because I think we've got to start there when we head to Psalm 45. Um, Listen to uh, Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there where Jesus himself opens your minds to understand the scriptures? And of course, that is what the Spirit of God does over and over again. Opens our minds to understand the scriptures, to see that the scriptures speak of Christ. So what is Psalm 45 about? Who is Psalm 45 about? It's it's about Jesus. You see, Somewhere around the world, maybe even today, in a Jewish synagogue, Psalm 45 might be the reading. And yet Christ is not going to be preached from Psalm 45. But when we, in the church, read and speak of Psalm 45, we're going to read of Christ and we're going to speak of Christ. What is the psalm about? Who's it about? It's about Jesus. And as we will see, Hebrews chapter 1 makes the direct connection. Um, What does this psalm tell us? What does this psalm teach us about Jesus? Who is he? And what he does? Remember in our study in Mark's gospel, um, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave some good answers, but then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for all of the disciples, said, you are the Christ. This is helping us understand who Jesus is. He is the Christ here foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures. But this psalm is not just about Jesus, as we will see. It's about us. Ephesians 5, that we heard read earlier, makes the connection between marriages and the relationship that Jesus has with his church. So what does this psalm teach us about ourselves as believers? What does it teach us about who we are and what we are called to do? Well, our exploration of Psalm 45 will involve consideration of the two main features. The description of the bridegroom, verses 2 through 9, and the description of the bride, Verses 10 through 15. I want to go ahead and read uh, verses 2 through 15. After that introduction of this pleasing theme, the psalmist goes on to write now about the king, about the bridegroom. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. 
From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen of, in gold of Ophir. And then now the psalmist, the poet, speaks of the bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Well, let's spend a few moments now looking at this description of the bridegroom. He's a king and he has kingly stature. Notice in verses two through five, his his character and his competence, his his appearance, what, it's it's handsome. His words, they're gracious words and he is mighty. He's got a sword on his thigh and he's filled with splendor and majesty. And notice it speaks of his victories in verse 4 in your majesty ride out victoriously. And this king, this bridegroom, he he he's behind just causes. Look at those causes, truth and meekness and righteousness. Just think for a moment about that description. I mean, do you put those together truth and meekness, truth and gentleness, truth and righteousness, yes, but right in the middle, there's just a, another description of, of what Isaiah writes in terms of the one who won't crush a bruised reed, who won't snuff out a fainting wick. He's mighty, but he's gentle. But don't let that fool you. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. See, the king in Israel was not only the political head, not only the religious, well, had aspects of the religious head, of course, but you had the high priest and others. But, But he's also the military head. He's the commander of Israel's army. And here it says he crushes his enemies. He he defeats them. What a description. And the poet is sort of putting words in the, in the mouth of the bride as she looks at her bridegroom, as she looks toward the king. Let's skip six and seven right now and jump to eight. Uh, it moves from the kingly stature to the kingly state. Um, your robes are all fragrant with all these um, spices and, and smells and There's music that makes him glad and and there's ladies of honor around him. And and, and verse nine is in anticipation of the bride to come as it speaks, at your right hand stands the queen. In other words, the king is the ruler, but at his right hand is the queen and she will rule with him. His character is outstanding. His, His... His uh, competence, 
cannot be matched. It's his wedding garments. It's, it's, even he has a train, as it were. But I want to go back now to verses 6 and 7, because sort of right in the middle, we, we see something that should jump out us as unusual. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, what's, what's going on there? Um, what do you do with this language? Well, what you do with it is you do what the Bible does with it. You turn to, to Hebrews chapter 1, and if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, um, because this is an example here of Old Testament language that's going to burst its back banks and demand more than just a human fulfillment. Because again, the Davidic king is anointed, as it were, by God. He's to be God's representative. But here is that beginning of the king to come that would really be son of God and son of man that we just sang. But look in Hebrews 1, where it's describing the supremacy of God's Son, and beginning in verse 8, the author to the letter to the Hebrews says, but of the Son, he says, your throne. Now remember, Jesus was being compared to the angels as superior, because what? Angels are around the throne, but the Son is on the throne, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, the king described in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45 that the author picks up in Hebrews 1 is is being identified as someone far greater than David, far greater than Solomon. It's an identification with the king that is divine. And again, Hebrews applies these verses to Christ. And so ultimately, this psalm is about Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the divine Messiah foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that we heard read from 2 Samuel 7. So here in these first or these nine verses, uh, uh, verses two through nine, is is a description of the bridegroom. But I, I want to say also it's it's a description of the believer's delight in God. The believer's delight in the in the beauty, in the majesty, in the justice of God. You see, everything that we just heard in Psalm 45 as a description of the king is said in different words about Jesus in the New Testament. He, he, just over and over again, and we'll see that in a moment in Revelation of his might and his, his justice and his truth, his awesome deeds. He, he, he will crush his enemies, of course, after he is exalted on high. Jonathan Edwards, as I mentioned, preached a sermon called The Excellency of Christ from Revelation 5, 5 and 6, where it speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God and only someone who is divine could could bring together these qualities of being both, as we heard earlier, both fighting for truth and righteousness 
but also meekness. As Edwards argues, only Jesus could, could bring together both the qualities of a lion and a lamb. So this is not only a description of the bridegroom, it's a, it's a description of what a believer sees, as it were, in Christ. It's been said that he who values not Christ above all does not value Christ at all. And so this elevated language is indeed to take us to that excellent man to come, Jesus. A Scottish minister in the 1600s by the name of William Guthrie said this, when faith looks at Christ, it says less would not satisfy and more is not desired. Did you hear that? Less would not satisfy and more is not desired. So this in Psalm 45 gives us a little bit more glimpse of who Jesus is. The king, the bridegroom, the one who's mighty, the one who's gentle. This is about the bride's delight in her bridegroom. This is about the church's delight in Christ. Speaks highly of Christ. So let's stop here before we go on and just ask ourselves this question. Um, do, we, do we delight in God? Do we... I mean, I'm convinced the more I'm out and about meeting with people, one of the um, reasons people tell me they're not interested in Christianity is they say that um, I can't see any difference between people who call themselves Christians and the rest of the world. They, they love the same things the world loves. But my friends, you know that a Christian is someone who loves not the world, but loves Jesus delights in Jesus. It is our witness to one another, is our witness to the watching world. Do people see us delighting in Jesus? Delighting is this, in this one, this, this bride who cannot wait to be joined in marriage to this kingly bridegroom. I mean, Lloyd-Jones has to be right that somehow um, a church that's just sad and somber and there's no joy there's no delight what kind of witness to the world is that lament yes sorrowful yes but delighting and joyful in the lord so ask yourselves would people accuse you of delighting in jesus that's what we're seeing here in psalm 45 now, we just read a few moments ago, verse 9, and it's a, it's a transition from the bridegroom to the bride. And so let's now consider the write-up of the bride. In verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Aha, the bride's getting some advice. The bride's getting some wisdom as she prepares for marriage. And verses 10 through 12, this counsel that's given to the bride is about the bride's allegiance. Sometime, somebody should write about a book about the Christian life in terms of remembering 
and forgetting. That we need to remember what we're supposed to remember and we're supposed to forget what we're supposed to forget. And here, the bride is told basically, forget your people and forget your father. Forget your people. The bridegroom's people are, your, are gonna be your people from now on. Uh, forget your father. You're going to leave his house. You're going to leave his people behind. You know, this is kind of an echo of uh, Genesis 2, what, 24, where uh, the man is to leave his, his home and to be joined to his, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here, it's a counterpoint. It's the wife is to leave her father's house and be joined to her husband. And here this language, after basically she's being told to forget your people, forget your father. And have we not heard Jesus say that? Have we not heard Jesus say, anybody that loves father or more or mother more than me cannot be my disciple? Have we not heard Jesus say, let anyone, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me? This is just a prelude uh, to that. But notice the language that continues, this language of submission. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Bow to him. Because as she submits herself to her king, she will find herself suddenly exalted. As she humbles herself before her her Lord, she's lifted up. As she bows the knee, she's raised up. It's the New Testament language of When you die, you live. When she denies herself, she's given everything. Because you see, that king, that bridegroom, what does he say? The king will desire your beauty. And we'll pick up on that in a moment. Submission and dignity. You know, by her homage before her husband, before her king, before her Lord, she's the gainer. She's not the loser. The world thinks submission. The world thinks obedience. You come out on the losing end. But that's not what we see in God's word, is it? Whoever humbles himself, what? The Lord will exalt him. This is what's going on here. She's bowing before him and she will be alongside him and share in his riches and glory. The Christian leaves behind all to follow Jesus. The the Christian parts with the past and begins anew with Jesus. So the bride's allegiance, but... But notice in verses 13 through 15, the bride's procession, the bride's procession, her bridal train, those who accompany her. It's a description of her splendid attire as she what? She leaves her home. She's led to the king. She's led to the king. The king has desired her. She is led to the king. It's a beautiful picture. You can think of uh, the book of Ruth, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Here's another instance of that that we see worked out in the New Testament. So in verses, in the first verses, we, we talked about it being a description of the bridegroom and, 
and the believer's delight in God. But here, here as the king desires your beauty, as the king waits for this procession to come to him, here it's God's delight in his people. I mean, it's, it's stunning, it's unexpected, it's improbable and hard to believe. Because if you're like most people, what? I'm not good enough for the king. I'm not beautiful enough. How can he put his eyes on me? The rest of the scripture, of course, makes it clear that he gives his bride her beauty. He clothes her with his righteousness. He, he's made her beautiful and he delights in her. As I was working on this and thinking about hymns, uh, there's a hymn that, that's in our Trinity hymnal. Um, it's also done by Indelible Grace called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, uh, made, uh, I think, the letters of Samuel uh, Rutherford. And there's a verse in the Indelible Grace version that's not in the Trinity hymnal, but it says this, Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. This description of the bride is a lot less than the description of the groom. But what it does say is it says that the king desires her and she is being led to the king with what? With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So the Lord Jesus makes it clear in his word that he glories in the beauty of his people and he desires his bride. As I'm counseling people, um, one of the things that comes up often is, why, why would God love me? You wouldn't believe what I've done. I'm like, I, I probably would believe what you've done. Well, I, 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 there's no way I'm going to make it up. I'm right. There is no way you can make it up. How, how do you... People struggle. I, what, what can I do to win the love of God? Right then and there, they're on, the, they're on the, um, the edge of starting to see that, that it's not the righteous that need a physician. It's, it's the sick and the lame and the injured. And they start to see that the Savior that they've had in their minds may not be the Savior that's depicted in Scripture. The Savior that they've had in their minds looks an awful lot like them. Not like the Savior who is true and righteous and meek and dies in their place and on their behalf. So here we have a description of two people, a bridegroom and a bride, and of two delights of God, the, his people's delight in him, and God's delight in his people. Well, look with me at the conclusion of this psalm. In verses 16, it goes back to the, to the groom, to the bridegroom, and we know this because of the, um, uh, the masculine pronouns. 
In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The song turns back to the king and he speaks of his enduring line, the sons that are going to come after in this union between bridegroom and bride. Well, let's go back to the 1945 wedding. You see, again, that was George H.W. Bush, who, though a lieutenant junior grade in the Navy, though shot down in the Pacific Ocean, would one day, after being the head of the CIA, or ambassador to China, head of the CIA, vice president, he would end up being president of the United States. And one son became a governor of Texas and the 43rd president of the United States, and another son became governor of Florida. Wow, kind of a, a, ro a royal wedding indeed. But let's get back to Psalm 45, because here at the end is a divine promise. It's, it's a benediction, it's a blessing, because God is purposing to fulfill the Davidic covenant for a messianic king to come. And of course, it's that son of David, Jesus. Jesus, we read in Hebrews, brings many sons to glory. And as we read in Revelation 6, who will reign with him on earth. The father here is delighted in the son, just as the father was at the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus. Well, let's move now from a royal wedding to the royal wedding. You see, that wedding here as described in Psalm 45 and the one there in New York in 1945, it's just a royal wedding, but, but Scripture speaks of the royal wedding. Because all of us, whether single or married, we're all heading to the royal wedding as the bride. And we're all headed to that feast that Revelation 19 speaks of. Have you ever noticed that all human marriages begin in joy but end in tragedy? Now, how can I say that? Well, how do marriages end? Either death or divorce. They all end in tragedy. Because you see, the, the human bond of love is eventually torn apart. But the marriage of Christ and his church, however, what? Begins with a tragedy. It begins with the death of Jesus in our place and on our behalf. It begins with tragedy, but... It ends, my friends, with a joyful and loving union that, guess what, will never be torn apart. Again, whether single or married, we're all headed to a royal wedding, not a royal wedding, but the royal wedding as the church unites fully and finally with their Savior. So let's wrap up by concluding that Psalm 45 is indeed a pleasing theme. 
We have the king and the bride. We have Jesus and the church. You know, there's a a whole lot of hymns we could sing today. Uh, in In the words of the church's one foundation, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. To borrow and adapt some titles of a couple of hymns we sing, because of that wedding, because of that marriage that will not end, we can say with all confidence and assurance that the love of Jesus will not let me go. The king will not let me go. The love of Jesus, the love of the king can never fail. And in the words of what we will sing in a moment, your ways of love have won my heart and brought me joy unending. Your saving power at work in me, bringing peace and the hope of glory. Indeed, Jesus is king of the ages. With this description of him in Psalm 45, now added to our growing understanding of who Jesus is, what he has come to do for his people and who his people are. Let us fear him together and bring him praise. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this unique psalm that sort of interrupted the flow of where we've been and enabled us to stop and think about the glories of Jesus. Father, would you forgive us for not delighting in Jesus? Forgive us, Father, for delighting in the things of this earth, and would you, would you indeed um, have, make it so that there is an expulsive power of a new affection that pushes other things out of our hearts? May that expulsive power be Jesus and his love for his people. Father, be pleased to use this text to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.